The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawkbox. These are your headlines. Uh, the global rally continues on Wall Street with the S&P closing at a fresh record high. As President Trump says, new trade talks with China have already started. I'm very happy either way, but I think we have a good chance of making a deal. I think they want to make a deal because they're losing many companies that are leaving because of the tariffs, because they don't want to pay the tariffs. The Chinese Premier Li Keqiang has acknowledged international and domestic economic slowdown in his keynote speech here at the World Economic Forum in Dalian. In response, the Chinese say they will speed up the opening of their financial services and manufacturing sectors. Khan returns to Hong Kong after protests turn violent overnight as demonstrators storm and ransack the Legislative Council building. Oil prices slip despite OPEC's decision to extend supply cuts as Saudi Arabia's energy minister says demand is growing. We're already seeing demand pick up. Refineries that have been in maintenance have come back. We saw inventory data last week out of the U.S. Uh, uh, basically prove what I just said, that demand is picking up. Plus, 15-year-old Corey Goff serves up a treat to eliminate five-time champion Venus Williams in a major upset on day one of Wimbledon. Fifteen years old. Where was she in the tech bubble? <laughs> uh, right, let's move on. President Trump makes me feel very old. President Trump says trade talks with China have restarted following a meeting with the Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping at last week's G20 summit. Mr. Trump said negotiations had, quote, essentially already begun by telephone, adding that a potential deal would somewhat favor the U.S. But Mr. Trump remained optimistic that an agreement can be reached with Beijing. I expect him to move, and if he doesn't move, that's okay, too. I'm very happy either way, but I think we have a good chance of making a deal. I think they want to make a deal because they're losing many companies that are leaving because of the tariffs, because they don't want to pay the tariffs. So they're losing many companies. They're moving to Vietnam. And by the way, some are moving back to the United States where they belong. While global markets rallied yesterday on the back of that Trump Xi meeting over the weekend, uh, not only, of course, uh, did we see a decision to hold back on further tariffs, but President Trump softened his stance on Huawei. That filtered through to a positive session on Wall Street, in particular for the tech-heavy Nasdaq. That index ended more than 1% higher on the day. Tech led all sectors in terms of those gains. And this, of course, as Steve mentioned in the headlines, followed gains in Europe, followed gains in Asia. So overall, we have have seen a very positive bounce on the back of that meeting over the weekend. Let's get into the U.S. chip makers. This was the part within the tech space that drove a lot of these gains. As you can see uh, beside me and for those podcast listener listeners, I am standing beside a wall of green Skywork Solutions up about 6% leading the charge there. But uh, across the board, we have seen the chip makers perform very strongly. We also saw those big tech giants, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, 
also getting a big boost yesterday and driving those NASDAQ returns. Let's take a look at FX markets and dollar crosses. Uh, yesterday, we saw the dollar index uh, on pace for the biggest gain since March. We are seeing now the euro gain a little bit versus the dollar up about 0.2%, uh, just under that 113 level. Sterling slightly weaker versus the dollar at 1.26. Uh, meanwhile, the dollar has weakened a little bit versus the yen in the latest session around that 108 level. Moving on, let's take a look at gold. Of course, this has been a huge focal point for markets as it benefited from uh, the the moves we saw in the dollar and the Fed's dovish turn. Now we are seeing this morning gold gain about a half a percentage point. But yesterday, gold saw its worst day in more than a year. So it pulled back. uh, And now we are seeing a little bit of those gains uh, taken in the gold price. It's currently trading under that $1,400 per ounce mark where it crossed, of course, uh, in the last weeks. Now moving on, let's see where Asian stocks are trading in the overnight session. We, of course, have continued fallout from the Trump-Xi meeting. We also had political tensions take center stage in Hong Kong. Now this morning, the Hang Seng is trading up about 1.3%, but protests in Hong Kong uh, taking a huge amount of attention over the last 24 hours. Uh, As we mentioned there in the headlines, at the moment, the situation has calmed. Perhaps that's part of why the Hang Seng is bouncing a bit, but that is something that we're keeping a close eye on. Meanwhile, Shanghai Composite uh, down about 0.6%. And uh, finally, let's take a look at opening calls for Europe and see how this puts us uh, in terms of the opening here in Europe. The DAX looking at a 32-point jump at the open. Uh, overall, we are looking at a positive start to trade on the second day of the month. Now, Chinese Premier Li Keqiang says risks to the global economy have risen amid increasing trade tensions. In a speech at the World Economic Forum in Dalian, Li said China aims to continue opening up its financial and manufacturing sectors. Li added that Beijing is also moving forward with plans to scale back ownership limits placed on foreign investors. In some key areas which are of great interest to foreign investors, restrictions on foreign ownership will be further eased. At the same time, we will further open up financial services and modern services. We will move up the lifting of foreign ownership caps in securities, futures, and life insurance from 2021 to 2020, one year ahead of schedule. What a, what a fascinating uh, set of comments from Premier Lee there as well. Jeff's at the World Economic Forum in Dalian. And Jeff, I think it's, it is fascinating because, yes, there are global challenges. There are trade war challenges. And, of course, they probably won't admit it in Dalian, but there are problems in Hong Kong as well at the moment. But the structural setup of the Chinese economy uh, is one of those big barriers to further progress. And there was an admission there that things need to change. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. And uh, it's it's something that we've heard before here. But I think the fact that they have said in this speech or Premier Lee has said in this speech that they want to move forward the opening up of the financial services sector by a year and that they are focused on opening up the manufacturing sector. As we know, that's been a a mainstay of the state-owned industries, I think is important. Whether it comes to fruition or not is something that the China watchers are going to have to scrutinize very closely here, because over the years, of course, we've gotten used to hearing similar comments and then not necessarily getting the delivery. While we've been here, of course, we've not only listened to Premier Li Keqiang's speech, we've been doing a lot of work with the executives who've come through this event in China. 
some of the issues that they're concerned about obviously relate to technology and the whole issue of how technology has been swept up in this trade story with the focus on Huawei and national security issues. That beloved phrase of the splinter net and do we end up with a, a divided world is never far away from the conversation when you're talking to people in the technology space. And I just wanted to play you a clip from Martin Frick. He's responsible for Asia Pacific for Temenos, which is a, a globally known company that operates in the banking software segment. Let's hear what he had to say. It's really a very uh, strange uh, development because uh, technology is becoming more global. So many uh, of the things we now have in place enable us to be global players. But on the same uh, at the same moment, the players become more domestic. So uh, this trend is not only in China, also in uh, Singapore where I live. You have five or six players that you can only use in Singapore, so completely contradicting. I think uh, over time uh, this will open up again because uh, one of the problems we face is that there is no stringent regulations uh, across the borders. And I think once this uh, gets aligned, then we will also have a better consumer experience and we'll be able to use the same technology, the same players, the same brands across so many, many markets. And a, a fascinating point, and just on a personal level, as I, I've been trying to use the taxis here in Dalian, you show them a European credit card and their toes curl. They're happy if you have WePay or Alipay or any of the other Chinese online payment services. Uh, but they kind of uh, look down their nose on you if you have something that looks like a, a European chip and pin piece of plastic. So that hasn't worked here. But they will, of course, take cash, which is at least reliable at this point. I want to talk about the growth story. Interesting that Premier Li Keqiang chose to focus on that. And he also talked about the remedies for 2007-2008 and the global financial crisis, just saying what we need is similar thinking about coordinated international responses to slower growth. Where are we seeing slower growth numbers turn up? Well, not too much in the unemployment numbers at the moment, but we did get a chance to talk to ADECO's Alain de Hayes. And I asked him, since he's in the temporary employment area, contract work effectively, he probably sees the trends a little earlier than others. What was he seeing globally at the moment? Let's listen to what he said. What we have seen since um, the last two quarters is indeed a slowdown of, of the activities, especially coming from Europe. Uh, our, our first quarter was at a level of minus 2%. So coming from plus 6% the first quarter last year. So you see the slowdown, mainly coming uh, from Europe, Asia being good, a, uh, US also uh, quite, quite stable in the growth, limited growth, but stable. And we see that kind of, of, of trends continuing in, in the second quarter. So no disruption at this stage. We have also a limited visibility on our market. Uh, no disruption, but also no, no amelioration or no, no in improvement of, of the situation at this stage. Alain de Hayes on growth. And I just want to circle back to the trade story. Um, Clearly, the Premier may not be the person who would make the boldest statements about trade negotiations with the United States. You'd expect that from President Xi. But I thought it was noteworthy how much the language was calibrated not to be inflammatory. And the fact that 
Premier Lee also talked about there would not be the use of competitive devaluations or the use of the renminbi as a way of trying to offset tariff impact. I thought that was important in that it uh, was clearly a message directed at the Treasury Secretary in Washington. Back to you guys. Yeah, and thank you, Jeff. That's perfect. And, and on a programming note, literally in about 20 minutes' time, we've got an amazing guest uh, just to get a U.S. perspective on this. Rick Scott, of course, is a Republican senator for Florida. Uh, he has called China a foe and an adversary, uh, of course, relating to the Huawei situation. It'd be absolutely fascinating to get his take on what's going on at the moment. Right. Meanwhile, uh, order has been restored in Hong Kong following a night of violent protests. Demonstrators had stormed and vandalized the legislative council building on the anniversary of the territory's return to Chinese rule. Police used tear gas to disperse the protesters who had taken to the streets to fight against a controversial extradition bill. And Sherry, you're standing outside the exact point, of course, uh, where the assembly was stormed. So incredible location uh, for you to report from as well. But there is a bit of division, isn't there, amongst some of the protesters because the vast majority have been stunningly peaceful. But of course, events took a different turn last night. Exactly. That's an important point that we need to make here, an important distinction that we need to make marking the 2019 handover anniversary, certainly marked and marred by this unprecedented level of violence and chaos happening at the Legislative Council building. But for the most part, for the pro-democracy demonstration that we saw where five and a half a million people participated yesterday. It was a peaceful demonstration. But let me just point out that there was a small splinter faction of this anti-extradition bill protesters who decided to take things a little radical to the next level. I think it was an explosion of their weeks-long frustration after weeks-long uh, protests, and they feel like the Hong Kong government didn't really listen to them enough. It didn't really engage with them enough and didn't really heed to their demands enough. So we saw, uh, as you pointed out, to some of the protesters uh, broking, breaking in to the Le Legislative Council building. And in fact, the LegCo president just over the last hour or so saying that he doesn't expect any legislative meetings happening here for the next two weeks or so, calling this particular area quote unquote, a crime scene. And in fact, we do see some police officers starting their investigation as well, gathering evidence of what is left of the LegCo. A lot of scars left on the building and some of the Chinese characters that I'm reading uh, showing a lot of anger towards Hong Kong police. In terms of the reaction they were getting uh, to yesterday's scenes of violence and chaos, uh, of course, uh, Carrie Lam, uh, for example, Chief executive of Hong Kong had her message out calling, uh, you know, saying that there is a lot of distress and outrage on her part while promising to listen better. Take a listen to what she had to say. This is something that uh, we should seriously condemn because nothing is more important than the rule of law in Hong Kong. So I hope uh, community at large will agree with us that with these violent acts that we have seen, it is right for us to condemn it and hope society will return to normal as soon as possible. 
And I think the key point in her message is rule of law and uh, basically um, saying condemning the acts of violence of yesterday uh, as a violation of what Hong Kong stands for, which is really rule of law and freedom of expression. But of course, like, that needs to come within the judicial boundary. In the meantime, we are react- getting reaction from some business organizations as well. For example, Amchamp in Hong Kong also uh, reacting to what happened yesterday, uh, saying that uh, they do not condone any acts of violence. Remember, this is an organization that was actually standing against the Hong Kong government's push for this very controversial extradition bill. So really, moving forward, watching this development here in Hong Kong, the crucial question is, can this anti-extradition bill protest continue to garner public support and keep that sustainability given what happened yesterday? Guys? Excellent coverage as ever. Thank you very much indeed. Extraordinary positioning next to where we were literally watching those pictures yesterday of the um, the trolleys loaded ramming into the legislative building. Thank you very much indeed. Right. Uh, coming up on the show, OPEC extends production cuts without complications. No complications? I'm surprised. Anyway, we'll cross live to Vienna for the latest when we come back. A CNBC signature event. East Tech West. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nansha, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. It has exceeded the limit of enriched uranium it's allowed to stockpile under the nuclear agreement. Confirming the breach, the country's foreign minister said actions by the Europeans have not been enough. He also warned that Tehran remains on track to raise its enrichment level even further. Crude is trading off its recent highs after rising more than 1% in yesterday's session on OPEC's decision to extend its production cuts by another nine months. Speaking to reporters at the meeting in Vienna, Saudi Arabia's energy minister struck an optimistic tone on the demand for oil despite weak global conditions. We've seen uh, good demand numbers. We've seen the U.S. pick up. I think there have been things like weather-related issues. I think some of the industrial activity has pulled back temporarily as a result of uh, the trade dispute between Uh, China and the U.S. Uh, I'm optimistic, uh, having just come myself from Osaka, that there is a lot of good will between the U.S. and China that is is pushing towards an agreement uh, this year. So that will remove some of the constraints on industrial uh, productivity. Very interesting comments there, Dan, and I know you've got Amrita to send with you as well. A couple of points there. One is come from Osaka, where, of course, many people thought the deal was stitched up before they even got to Vienna. Uh, secondly, global demand picking up again. That is interesting. I wonder if our guest agrees. 
Absolutely, Steve. Let's find out. Very pleased to say that Amrita Sand joins us live now outside OPEC headquarters here in Vienna. Amrita, welcome back into the conversation. Thank you. Good to have you. Uh, do you think this shows perhaps OPEC playing defensive when it comes to the overall demand outlook, not just towards the end of this year, but looking into 2020 as well? Oh, no, absolutely. Especially the fact that they extended it for nine months. Uh, they know that Q1's always seasonally weak and they just don't want what's happened right now. The dates being changed has become too last minute. Um, so the market always frets around December saying, oh, if demand falls again in Q1, will prices collapse? So they're saying, we'll meet in December, but let's just extend uh, the, uh, the deal all the way through Q1 2020. We'll take care of lower demand. Plus, you know, right now, I know Alfala said that the H2 outlook looks better, but so much depends on the trade deal or the truce between the US and China. Uh, global demand has slowed down considerably. So how do we explain the price reaction to this deal? Does it tell you that this was well priced in and well telegraphed by OPEC or are there other factors at play? Well, you know, if you have the announcement being made at G20 uh, by Putin and then MBS and then Fala, everybody kind of came out. Uh, there isn't really a surprise element for the market unless, you know, they come out and say, oh, we'll do more, uh, which was never on the cards. So I think that's why price action has been a little bit disappointing, if anything. Uh, having said that, I do think the press conference was kind of very good and they provided a lot of clarity on certain metrics like inventories. Uh, so I think Hopefully, I think today's price action should be better than yesterday's. But yes, yesterday, by the end of it, people were like, what was the what's point? Going uh, yeah, what's yeah. going on? Exactly. Um, OPEC has shifted the goalpost on inventories. How significant is that? I think that, for me, is the most significant thing f uh, for this meeting because the nine months we already knew. Uh, so they moved. They had a five-year rolling average for inventories, and we know over the last five years inventories have been rising. So that bar just meant that you know they've achieved their target. But what Alfala said is this is what the JTC and the JMMC has recommended. They moved it to the 2010-2014 average when inventories were a lot lower and more representative of the market. Using that metric, they need to run down another 250 million barrels. So, you know, finally, you have a very certain number. You know what OPEC is out to achieve, but also justifies the fact that they need to extend it for nine months, potentially longer through 2020. Talk to me about how you're reading demand towards the end of the year and into 2020 as well. Clearly, this is a critical moment for the oil market because there's a lot of concerns about how firm demand is going to be, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would say even right now, one of the things you're seeing is, uh, say, China hasn't collapsed at all. It's still growing slower. But it's just that lack of confidence. Companies have just stopped investing and placing orders. You've seen very weak numbers out of other parts of Asia, Europe as well. And hopefully the truce brings some confidence. But that's the key over here. If that doesn't come back quickly, all of second half and into 2020, things will be weak. Having said that, there is also a re-election in the US. And I think Trump will need a very strong economy. So I think there is kind of talk with the Fed potentially cutting rates at the end of this month and uh, more, that there will be some momentum to solve some of these trade wars. If demand is good, I think oil prices have a lot of upside here and into next year, especially with IMO 2020 coming up. But without demand growth, I think we'll probably hold around here and not much upside. How much more upside do you think? If, the, if demand growth is even a million barrels per day, I think we can easily be 75, if not slightly higher, because the physical crude market is still tight. How are you reading the other major uh, element to come out of this meeting, which is clearly the frictions that still exist between Saudi Arabia and the Iranians when it comes to the overall OPEC charter? What do you think was the key thing that the Iranians had to agree to in order to get this deal over the line? We're talking about the agreement between Saudi Arabia and Russia that the Iranians essentially opposed. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why we were all here till 10 p.m. yesterday. It was the charter. I think Iran's point is that whatever decision is taken within OPEC, that is, that's OPEC's 
decision. Russia has been far more involved. You know, when the initial deal started in 2016, everybody doubted their role. But now they play a political role as well, kind of bridging the gap between Iran and Saudi Arabia quite often. But I think what Fala said was interesting. He said that, yes, the charter, it is a cooperation agreement, but OPEC statutes are above that. And I think that's important for Iran, that they want to keep this group as that's the main group and everything else is kind of additional on top of that. Do you think that the Iranian concerns are legitimate, though? This deal came together in Osaka, not in Vienna. Does that really cast doubt over the relevance of OPEC moving forward? I think, well, I wouldn't say relevance of OPEC, but I think you have to say that this is the, it's a new normal or a new OPEC plus or whatever you want to uh, call it. Because yes, not just Iran, there are other key members as well saying, hang on, this is an OPEC decision, but it's now being decided by heads of state and announced before uh, the OPEC meeting. So it's not just Iran. I think that's a very fair kind of concern. Having said that, I think OPEC has gone through lots of changes in the past. I think having countries like Russia on board is very important. Uh, but yes, I think the, the politics of it kind of still needs to be ironed out. Yeah, indeed. Uh, indeed. And, you know, OPEC is never really free of uh, any of these tensions. It's certainly something we've seen in the past Absolutely. as well. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.